What does flow mean to you? Flow is a state of mind, a state in which a person becomes fully immersed in an effortless and continuous progression. To me, the ultimate goal in jiu-jitsu is finding that perfect role with perfect and effortless flow. I'm Professor Hayden Martz, and this is the Flow BJJ Podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 10 of the Flow BJJ podcast. Today I have two podcast rookies with me. Uh, We're going to talk about the recent Emerald City Invitational 3 put on by Sam McHale. I have Eric Galvez, he's a brown belt here at Flow, and I have Brian Clement who is a blue belt here at Flow. How are you doing guys? Good. Very good. So we're going to... We're going to hop right into the undercard first. We won't cover the entire undercard, but there's definitely some really good matches that I feel like are definitely worth discussing. So let's start right at the beginning. I was actually in the back with Meg during this one, but I caught I caught it afterwards. Um, Cato versus Hannah Rosario. Hannah was in trouble, <laughs> like, the entire match. Like... Here's the thing, okay, and my disclaimer to this is that Aiden was driving us, and we got stopped <laughs> by the cops, okay? So so he's he's flying through the roads, and he's doing 22 miles above the speed limit, and the cop stops us. So now we're already late, okay? We get, and, and by the time we got there, we literally just saw Meg get on the mat. Right. Okay. So that part, <laughs> that right. part, okay, we never saw. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me recap it for you two guys. <laughs> I was there. I was in a different car. <laughs> I did not get pulled over. <laughs> uh, Hannah, from what I could see from a distance, again, I was out with uh, with Meg prepping, but Hannah was in trouble the entire match, and I watched this uh, on Flow Grappling after. In trouble the whole match multiple uh, submission attempts by Cato, and then all of a sudden she locks up this triangle like quickly out of nowhere and ended up finishing with a triangle arm bar but from top or uh yeah well from like a side triangle position and it was just it was a huge comeback and an amazing first match of the night for sure Nice way to set the tone. Really, really good, yeah. Yep. The first two were pretty quick finishes. That one and the the second one was also... Yes. (laughs) So Max Greenberg from Montgomery, one of our... um, Another fellow Tom DeBlas affiliate school. I was talking to Miguel Benitez before the... uh, before the event, and he had he had two fighters. Both of them were fighting before and after Meg. The way that they they set it up, just for a little behind the scenes here, um, they had the the fighters, the match that was going on, the match that was on deck, and then the match that was in the hole, all lined up behind the curtain, mm-hmm. waiting to go. So after Hannah Rosario won, uh, they had Max Greenberg in line getting ready to walk out and then they had Meg waiting with me so I was behind the the uh, curtain I couldn't see the match I have since watched it but uh I believe it was 13 seconds wow yeah yeah and uh so (laughs) so Meg got 
put out there pretty quickly after <laughs> that. We were expecting to have five, five or ten minutes to kind of talk a little bit and, and make sure. But it, for the sake of nerves, it probably was better to have a, have a quick finish and get thrown right out there. It was a beautiful heel hook. There were a lot of heel hooks that night. Mm-hmm. A lot. I mean, if I had to figure out percentage of heel hooks, like 40, 50% of yep. the finishes were on the heel hooks. Yep. Max shot a shot a double leg, ended up in guard, controlled the knee line, and sat back on the heel hook super quick. Um, it was very, very good, especially for, I believe he's a blue belt. And uh, uh, Carlos Alba from the vault was who he was going against, and it was over just as quick as could be. All right, so match number three, Flowzone Meg Gleisner versus Elise Shaw from Riverfront Jiu-Jitsu in New Jersey. Let's talk about that one. I thought um, I kind of saw the process of the whole match right from the very beginning because she started with something. I was like, oh, yeah, she did that to me. And then she kept going. I was like, oh, yeah, she does that to me too. <laughs> and it ended in a uh, inverted triangle. I was like, yeah, that's that's about how every role that I do with Meg goes. Yeah, there <laughs> it was... Uh, it was perfect. It was her chain right from beginning to end. She just executed flawlessly. Yep. The Elise pulled guard or sat to guard like immediately, which kind of ex- kind of surprised me because our game plan was for Meg to work from the feet for 10 or 20 seconds, get a feel for strength, get a feel for movement, and then sit to guard. Um, but this girl didn't even connect with Meg and just immediately sat to guard. So obviously that changes the game plan up fortunately for meg anytime and every time we roll i'm always playing guard yes and she's always attacking me from yeah. top so yeah. that became kind of just old hat for her and all of a sudden you know you just saw her mauling her over mm. and over and went from transition to transition early on uh elisa's guard looked good though early on and, and she had a yeah. couple entries to uh get on an arm she inverted for an arm and inverted for a leg yeah but obviously, Meg has seen that multiple times before and worked through it. I've watched the match. I don't even know how many times. But it was about a minute and a half in when she finally settled into side control. And f- me from the corner coaching her, I knew after that it was probably going to be over. Yeah, it, it looked really good. She had like a, a semi-modified uh, mount. And once she sat back... And that leg went over the shoulder. Uh, that yeah. was all she wrote at yeah. that point. And uh, I know from from experience and seeing her role with me or seeing her role with uh, other people in here, regardless of size. I mean, sh- if she gets to that high S mount, it's tough to get out. I know. <laughs> it's really tough to get out. I know. So that's just sort of the beginning of the end. And you saw how quickly that window closed for that for that girl. Yep. And and the window closed so fast and when she blocked the right leg or the left leg that was over the shoulder, the right leg went over and countered. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, it was an S mount to like a gift wrap with the triangle with a Yokosunkaku and then swept her to her side and finished with the triangle arm bar. So it was uh really good she was getting stacked at that point and yeah she just inverted yep yep it was really good all right so let's look at the fourth match on the card 
which is another uh, one of Miguel's students from Montgomery, Manny Pereira, uh, against Zane Ashraf from Sarah BJJ. This match went the distance, and it, it was a tough-fought match for sure. Uh, Manny from Montgomery got the win on based on ride time, I believe, but definitely, definitely a hard-fought match. Can you break down strategically um, when you're in that overtime situation what you saw a lot of people doing? You know, were they sitting back and kind of staying patient and hoping for a ride time win, or were they being aggressive and trying to get the submission for the most part? I feel like once you get to a to a competition level, it's not it's not easy to finish from the back. You know, yeah. guys are hell bent on making sure that they're not getting tapped with a rear naked choke especially in, in nogi there's not a lot of various choke options you know without changing position so you're really hell bent on protecting one specific yeah you know submission makes it difficult it does and and what i liked about this setup the ebi setup versus ibjjf where you're playing points is that the strategy approach the strategic part and the tactical portion of how you you play the game changes a lot when you're doing EBI rules. Yep. You know, and everyone tries to finish. You know, as opposed to I got two points and now I'm just going to sit on top of you for the rest of the match. Exactly. No. And there's a, based on the EBI rules, which I I still am I'm undecided on what my favorite rule set is. I do like the EBI rules. I certainly like them a lot better than IBJJF. But with you end up, you could end up in a very lengthy match under EBI rules, especially if you're on the main card. You're fighting a 10-minute round that if that goes the distance, you're looking at three overtimes, potentially a four. How long are those, the overtimes? So two minutes for the top half of the you know top half of the overtime, two minutes for the bottom half of the overtime, three times. So potentially all in if if everyone went the distance ride time wise, could be twenty two minutes long for the entire match, <laughs> which wow. you, which you saw some pretty lengthy matches in the main card, which we'll get to. Yeah, I I I watched some of the overtimes and. I didn't think that they did a lot of attempts to really finish, but really more of a ride time and a control time. And mm -hmm. I was just thinking, you know, if uh, at least the way we play here, you know, we're trying to finish at every moment, mm -hmm. you know. And, uh, and I thought that that was uh, interesting where everyone was, just as you said, everyone knows rear naked. You know, everyone defends rear naked. How many times, Brian, have you done that to me? I hate that. Rear okay. naked choke? Yeah. Like, never? <laughs> <laughs> but I spent a lot of time getting rear naked, you know, so I, I, I figured out a way to at least work it in my, in my game to where I constantly defend it. And I think that's what happens with most people in that scenario is that, you know what? I know how to do this. I'm yep. just going to stay here, and I'm just gonna, not going to get choked out. And I think the way to kind of finish some of those is, like, think outside the box and finish the match. That way you don't have to worry about right time. Yeah. Well, we saw that later on in the event. I, I don't recall who it was, but we saw people working from the armbar position yeah. instead of the back. It was Oliver. 
Oliver did it. And Oliver then, yeah. did it. Another uh, before him, the guy who Josh Ronan Hayden. Josh it. Hayden did it as well. I feel like, like a lot of positions in jujitsu, it's high risk, high reward. You know, yeah. You're more likely to see that armbar finish, but you're also more likely to lose them to yeah. an escape. So it's a, there's it, it there's is strategy. Yeah, I there's mean, levels I, to it. I think if you're looking at you know, if you take back, you know, for the most part, you can you can keep back control, you know. But I think if you're playing armbar, you're looking to finish at that point. Right. Well, I also think that you know, there's a deeper strategy than that too, where the first, the first uh, two overtimes, maybe you're taking the back, and if you find that you're losing that ride time battle on the third overtime, now we have to switch to armbar because we need a finish. Yeah in order to win because of ride time is not, you know, it's clear that we're not going to win via ride time. So there was, I forget who it was, but there was somebody who went the distance with an arm bar ride. They would just, you know, when the arm bar was out, they'd switch to omoplata then triangle. They just kept submissions coming Yep. so that they, they still rode the whole time. Was so that, that was Oliver, wasn't it? I can't remember. I don't yeah. think so. Wait a minute. I thought it was Hayden. Yeah. I thought it was could Josh, have been Hayden. Josh Hayden. Yeah. yeah it could have been. All right, let's uh, let's look at a couple more of these undercard, and then we'll get to the to the main card here. So, next one up for me, I don't know if you guys recall this one, but Laura Kent from Tenth Planet Allentown versus Ainsley Cox from Heart BJJ. I'll be honest, I paid particularly close attention to this one because this is uh, Haley's weight class and. For those of you that don't know, Haley was looking for a match on this card, but was unable to get a matchup um, at Blue Belt. So these are, I believe they're both, Laura's a 10th planet purple belt. I assume Ainsley is also a, a jiu-jitsu purple belt, but this was a super fun match uh, for me to watch. Laura has, her guard looked phenomenal. Uh, very 10th planet-esque, high high guard attacking the shoulders and attacking the neck um, from the guard. Lots of dominant positions, but ultimately ended up losing in overtime. Was it due to athleticism on the other side? Or, I mean, I, I love that style. It just doesn't work for me, that whole dead or- orchard thing. and Yeah. Well, Laura in regulation had multiple chances or multiple dominant positions that she was in. And the girl just worked her way out. And then in overtime, I, I fully expected... Uh, Laura's very tall. Um, I don't know her height exactly, but I fully expected the the longer legs to be a benefit in the uh, you know ride time for overtime from right. the back with body triangles and things like that. But she was effective from the back, but Ainsley ended up getting a finish in either the first or second overtime. Didn't um, didn't Ainsley have the back for a good portion of regulation? She did for a while. Yeah. After um, after Kent Kent had some really good attacking positions, and then yeah, you're right. It was and either back or top side. Yeah. Do you think she blew like it was a conditioning thing where she just try went too hard for you know to try to get her move and just blew herself out and couldn't maintain during the overtime? I mean, it's possible. You know, it's hard to it's hard yeah. to know. As you know, when you're competing, it's a whole different world than in the gym. 
and if you're talking about time adding up, you know, for the undercard it was six minutes per match, but then you know potentially up to twelve more minutes of of overtime. Yeah. So that can wear you down, for sure. It could have been a result of that, but you know maybe maybe not. Hard to say. A match that you wanted to talk about, Eric, which I also thought was phenomenal. Christina Pinto from Silver Fox versus Alexandria Whitlock. Let's, uh, that was super fun to watch. Let's that talk was, about that, that was. I mean, you just saw Christina just getting mauled the whole match, the whole match. And it just looked like, you know, she had no answers for the physicality game. You know, but that said, you know, going to listening to Silver Fox on her corner, yeah, he was so calm. He just let her work through the whole to the whole match and said, you're fine, you're fine, do this, do that. Very specific and detailed in what he was saying, you know, which got her through a lot of those really hairy moments. For sure. He, uh, I paid particularly close attention to him uh, coaching the, the students because obviously that's you know where I'm trying to excel is, is with coaching, and he was a phenomenal sideline coach um it was really neat to see that for sure whereas from the other side it was all i mean obviously there was technique there but it was all aggression it was all pressure yeah Mm -hmm. just constant attacking the neck with the guillotine one specific move over and over squeezing (laughs) I thought for sure her grips would burn out way before they did. Uh, they did. I think it's probably the adrenaline, you know, but uh, I really, really admired the way Christina at the time just really weathered it despite the overwhelming position that she w- she should have been tapped. You know, she just gutted it out. Yeah, and uh, Brian missed that one. Yeah, unfortunately, there were uh, no concessions, and my girlfriend got hungry, so... <laughs> I uh, had to sacrifice. (laughs) (laughs) I've actually um, uh, met Christina. She used to train at at our gym over at my old place in New Jersey. And she used to go there with Enrique, who also uh, also trained. He was actually an instructor at our school. And uh, she was a good role back then. She clearly got much, much better technically. What rank was she uh, when you trained with her? I think she was a blue at the time. And that had to be somewhere around three years, three years ago, she used to come in and, you know, it's, and, you know, it's always a lot of guys in a room, right? So when you find a girl that's there and Christine is probably one of the, my wife, Christine is probably one of the few women who still goes to the men's classes over there. So it was, she stood out, you know, so, and it, me being as small as I am, you know, we rolled and yeah, she was, she was actually pretty good. I didn't know that she was doing a lot of uh, tournaments though at the time, but she's a brown belt now um so this was a brown belt female match yeah but it was it was interesting because she the the other girl clearly had a very specific strategy uh, clearly a move that works well for her in her academy yeah because she went after you know broke down the head controlled went for the guillotine from very specific positions and Christina fought out for what was it, a minute and a half yeah. two or three different times a minute and a half and she would get out escape get to a good position and that girl would attack with the same same thing over it was uh, 
It was interesting to watch. And then overtime, it's playing now on my computer. Overtime was where the tide started to change. You know, she got out of the armbar position and then was able to finish. Um, I, I have to think that that girl tired herself out going after those submissions. But like you say, adrenaline yeah. gets you gets you pretty, pretty far. far for a yeah. little while anyway. Can get you pretty far. Um, all right. Also, one more note on that. You said uh, Silver Fox had was great coaching. Um, and something I noticed, and maybe I took this for granted up until I've watched some more jujitsu, um, you have a very calm style when you're coaching. Um, and I saw a lot of the more successful players have good detailed coaching. How important is that? Um, as opposed to like, for example, the 10th planet coach that was there, <laughs> <laughs> pull the head or, or don't, or, Oh, your arms trap. I, I mean, know what I, f- I do from here, you know, from my point of view, I feel like when I, when I coach, there's a few things that I want to try to try to implement and being calm while coaching, speaking at a normal level at a normal pace is an effort to keep you calm while you're competing, keep you level headed, keep you from gassing out. But I also want you focused enough that you have to listen to what's being said. You know, when someone's just yelling at you, you know, it's hit or miss whether they're going to pay attention. But if, if you get used to being coached a certain way, and that helps keep you calm, then that's, I mean, that's what my goal is. Uh, And then as far as the instruction goes, it's very specific. You know, I'm coaching you guys. I know what your games are, um, but I also know what you should be looking for if you don't see it. I have a third-person perspective, so sometimes I can see things that you may not see, whether that's offensive or defensive. Um, But my coaching style is very... uh, very much get on your left hip let's get an underhook with our left hand let's work our hips out you know very specific to get you into dominant positions whereas you know you hear some coaches which you know why are you doing that don't do that (laughs) just but but also i think you know when you go into a, a tournament and you're in that match you're also you've also done enough homework with respect to how you're going to approach this. And so as a coach, as a good coach that you are, you actually make sure that you stay on point and focused on those good things that you can do. Yes. And uh, as long as the game plan has been talked about, which that's part of coaching too, it's the coaching isn't just when you're sitting on the side of the mat, it's being prepared ahead of time. So, You know, when I, Meg and I talked a bunch leading up to this, we had a specific game plan. And I told her the game plan while I'm coaching you is going to be vague initially and then be far more specific once you get in either a very good or a very bad spot. So what I mean by that is, you know, if if Meg is playing, say, bottom half guard, you know, and things are set are kind of neutral. You know, my instructions are going to be vague. Um, you know, let's let's get underneath her, or let's, you know, let's look for this, or 
or let's move, you know, let's transition some to something else. Whereas once she gets in a dominant position, it's going to become far more specific. Um, because there's nothing that girl's going to be able to do about it. Plus we put her, I mean, I know the training she went through. I mean, she used me as her, I guess, uh, beating up dummy for for days and days. (laughs) And I, I, I just remember going 11 straight days in a row. And I think seven of them were with her and 30 and 40 minutes of her just beating me up. So, so yeah, I, I remember I'm thinking, we've covered just about every single scenario that she could possibly come across. Right. I think a lot of people see the match and see the success, and not just with Meg, but with with anyone. You know, they watch the match and they think, I could do that. But what's not seen, you know, whether that's at the UFC level or at our academy, is that, like you said, the day in and day out, showing up for class, doing a minimum of 10 six-minute rounds and then still looking to find someone to practice the EBI overtime rules with. I mean, that's a typical night seven days a week for her leading up to this. So there was no way that we were going to be out prepared, you know, for this match. And I just remember thinking at the time, you know, this girl that she had to go against has to be stronger because everything else from a technical perspective Mig was going to outdo her, yep. you know, and out outclass her. Moreover, her flexibility is probably one of the more intimidating parts of her game to me. You know, I mean, I literally go home and I say, "Okay, my rolling armbar no longer works. I'm going to have to find something else." And then spend two nights in a row trying to figure out exactly how to do a a rolling anaconda so she doesn't get me. Right. <laughs> yep. She creates holes out of nowhere. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. and and. And can create and only requires a very small amount of space to <laughs> implement something. Yeah. You know, that's part of it too. And that's how it is for anyone at a high level who's small. You know, those windows of opportunity do not have to be open very far and you're in serious trouble. Yeah. What blows my mind about Meg is like comparing her level of jujitsu to somebody who's like pretty decent it's almost like the world's apart like she and i are both blue belts i outweigh her by 100 pounds you know when i go to local competitions 120 120. (laughs) (laughs) um when i go to local competitions usually i place in my weight class and we rolled today she tapped me three times in five minutes yeah it's like but what the level is so much higher than you know i think most people realize yeah no i would it's a lot of it's timing and just an extreme amount of time on the mats there's no substitute for there's an obsession there too yeah absolutely. <laughs> almost unhealthy i don't know just me it was either coke or jujitsu so right, exactly <laughs> um so that's uh that's the uh matches i had that i want to talk about for the undercard um let's get into the the main card so we had a 185 pound tournament with a $10,000 first place prize and we had some pretty big names first off I had talked to Sam leading up to this and there were some really big names uh, that at the last minute backed out one was there coaching and that's Dante Leon he was supposed to be in the uh, 
in the event. I don't know if it was injury or or what it was, but he ended up uh, not uh, not competing. And John Blank from Tenth Planet as well um, was scheduled He's to be a in savage. There, so yeah. yeah. Um, that being said, there was still a pretty good who's who list of of uh, one eighty five um, pounders. So let's look at uh, let's look at the bracket here. I've got uh, first matchup is Giancarlo Bodoni against Steve Caston. And they had, did they have a uh, play-in tournament for this one, or is that the next yes, one? Yes, they did. Okay. The, so they had, uh, let's see, there was two people who made it in via the finishers. I believe that was Caston and Mateo Martinez. Uh, I'm not 100% sure on that, but I'm, I'm pretty sure. Uh, so if you're casting, you win a finishers to get invited to the 185 tournament, and then you face Giancarlo. Yeah, this <laughs> right is a pretty beginning. pretty big uh, underdog there. That's a that's a tough draw for your first uh, first match for sure. I don't know if you guys recall this, but Giancarlo's rear naked choke looked like the most brutal thing I've ever seen. <laughs> That guy's just huge. I mean, I watched when I was watching his matches. I just saw his his strength and his size, you know, and skill sets, absolutely. But you know, the strength portion was what really got him. As I watched it, what really kept him in control of everything. Yep. He, I, I don't know what he is walking around at for a weight or what he was back up to the day after the weigh-ins, but. Uh, this tournament had weigh-ins the day before the tournament. He had to have been at least 200 pounds. Um, and he's not a small, small guy. Where's he from? He trains with uh, with Dana Hare. Is he at New Wave? Yeah. He Didn't must. He must have used up all the uh, steroids from uh, Gordon's <laughs> closet or something, because that thing is that kid's huge. He well, he's coming fresh off winning the ADCC yeah. trials too. So he is absolutely. He won some big matches leading up to that. That was. Uh, yeah, him and Oliver. Was, do you think he was um, tired from that at all? Like, did that wear and tear get to him? Do you think later in the tournament? I don't think so. I he think he just got it. caught. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He he played. He got. In, he got in trouble with a leg lock from uh, from that guy from Sarah, mm. uh, Matt Sarah's Nick Ronan. Yeah, yeah, yep. and. Yeah, once he got there, he would not let it go. And that was, I think, the only sub that I saw that uh, Ronan had prior to that. It was mm-hmm. all a bunch of overtime and ride time. time. Yep. Yeah. It was interesting, too. Um, I feel like where they were on the mat didn't help Giancarlo at all either. It was sort of oh, yeah. like they were kind of pinned off the corner of the mat, up against the chairs. Um, I'd have to watch it again to see, you know, which direction yeah. the escape was, but I don't think he had anywhere to go yeah. uh, to escape that. And that was the one where they like rolled way off the mat. Yeah, yeah, they were like right at the feet of everyone who was seated. And as fast as as an inside heel hook comes on, you don't have time to complain that there's no. <laughs> there's nowhere to roll to. <laughs> 
Especially when uh, someone who's proficient in leg locks is is putting it on you. I apologize for jumping all over the place. By the way, I know. <laughs> no, you're that's <laughs> totally fine. Yeah, I, I, I should I should add a disclaimer. You know, I'm, I don't have a filter, so I'll just keep going. <laughs> the uh, the next match, so Giancarlo winner rear naked choke, uh, round one, Enrique Garlaza versus Steve Joachim. That was. I don't know if you guys caught the caught the that. submission yeah. was an esteem lock and it was tight. I saw that, okay, and I don't know. I, I disagree if it was an esteem lock. It looked like an Aoki because he set it up like an Aoki. Could have been, and it was it was beautiful. It was beautiful, and uh, it was a nice match. Yep. Next match I was very impressed with was uh, Josh Hayden from Gracie Owensboro versus Isaiah Wright. Josh hit a beautiful heel hook. I don't know how far into the match it was, but it came on in a hurry. I talked to him after the tournament for a few minutes. He's another uh, one of Tom's affiliate schools in uh, Crazy Owensboro in Kentucky. He has not competed for three years and is coming off from ACL surgery and then obviously COVID kind of sidelined everybody from competing. So this was first competition in three years. He looked phenomenal as far as I'm concerned. Um, what belt was he? He's a black belt. Okay. Yeah, he's been around a long time. I believe he chained, tra- used to train a lot with Joe Bays. I don't know that for sure, but I, I feel like that's the case. Um, but his leg locks are really good, <laughs> really, really good. Jumping into playing leg locks and heel hooks after coming off of ACL reconstruction is kind of ballsy. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. yeah, for sure. And he also hit, uh, I don't know if it was the match against Isaiah Wright or if it was the next match, but he hit a couple beautiful double leg takedowns, blast oh, yeah. doubles. Um, really, really good from, from quite a distance too. He closed the distance quickly and, and went after it. It was good. All right, let's look at uh, let's look at the next one. Uh, we've got Nick Ronan versus Mateo Martinez. Um, like you had already alluded to, Nick's matches. I mean, he just sort of grinded them out. Yeah, you know, went the distance, won via ride time. So not a lot to talk about there, other than again, he just kind of wore the person down, worked on his escape, and he really played that uh, ride time strategy well throughout the tournament for sure i think that kind of maybe caught him at the end too because he was he had a lot of mat time by the by the end yes yeah Uh, and and, uh you know mateo actually i mean i think he won the uh the finishers uh in 2021 i believe so Uh, he was from he's he's a black belt he's he's legit absolutely yeah so while Nick had some of the longest matches of the tournament, <laughs> yeah. Oliver Taza had some of the shortest matches of the tournament. Yeah. Uh, not to get ahead of ourselves, but to me, every time I watched Taza fight, he looked like he was on a different level than everyone else. Yeah. And that's not to say that these other guys aren't phenomenal because they are, but Taza just looked a little different. I watched both his finishes, the first two matches. One of them was uh, was with Enrique. I think it was Enrique. Yeah. And um, most of the 
most of the actually it wasn't Enrique. Um, uh, Tasha's finishes were were off of a false reap setup. Both of them, the first two matches, yep. both false reap into heel hook. Yep. Now, and it was beautiful the way he just connected him up and set him up. First match was uh, Nick Nick Domgani, uh, and second one was against uh, Jay Rodriguez. Actually, yeah. Um, both inside heel hooks. And just you know, like you said, the entry was beautiful. The finish was quick. Um, it, it's all under a minute. Yep. Yeah, you know, the way he set up. Even I mean, I like Jay Rodriguez's uh, game. I mean, his brother's uh, Nick is just you know, he he's a he's becoming a legend in his own name. And but uh, Nick's got some serious game. I think he's he is he B team. Yes. EJ? Yes. I remember. Yep. Yeah. I, I believe so. I think he trains with his brother, but I, I don't know that for sure. Uh, next match, which for me, um, I talked to him just briefly before the match, Sean Yadimarko versus Andre Petrovsky, who I believe has fought in the UFC yeah, a couple of times. He's uh, undefeated in the UFC's. 2-0 or... Yeah, I think he's 2 or 3-0, like and oh, something yep. like that. He's real monster when it comes to strikes, but yep. you can't punch in jiu-jitsu. He's from uh, <laughs> Immortals. Immortals in Clifton. Sean, yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so he um, he's from Immortals, but he actually cross-trains with Tom yeah, once or twice a week. Yeah. Um, he goes to Ocean County to train. Um, he looked phenomenal he did. In, uh, in his first match against Andre. You could tell with Andre that he wanted nothing to do with the, <laughs> with the yeah. leg game. Uh, he wanted to be positionally dominant and tried to keep his feet away at all costs. And eventually, Sean just finally, you know, extracted a heel and, and finished. What belt was he? I don't think he was black, was he? Who's that, Andre? Um, or Sean? Sean. Sean is a brown belt. Yeah. 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 And he looked looked great. Yeah. I feel like um, with any any time you're going after somebody who's an MMA jiu-jitsu person, going for legs is probably a good idea because legs are when when you're including strikes, legs is not the greatest way to go because the guy can just like stand up and punch you in the face. Right. Um, so I think that may have just exposed a weakness in Andre Petrosky because he doesn't probably doesn't rep legs as much as he does the other stuff. Oh, I would say anytime you. Anytime you your area of expertise, yeah. you that's what you gotta go after. Yeah, it's your focus, yeah. yeah. And you don't have all the other Muay Thai disciplines or boxing disciplines, and this is all you do. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, last match of the uh, opening round was Alan Sanchez against John Parisma, and I have to say, just in general. I enjoy watching Alan Sanchez fight a lot from 10th Planet. He yeah, he looked significantly smaller than everyone else, too. I don't know what his weight is, but I do know he was on the first Emerald City 16-man uh, tournament, which was 170. So to be at this 185, he either is at 185 or less if he's been cutting to 170 typically. He looked a lot thinner. A lot smaller yeah. than everyone yeah. else. And he um, he looked good. 
he looked really good. And it was typical Tenth Planet style, Tenth Planet game inversions and, you know, yep. good stuff. I was talking to Sandy about this uh, a few days after, but I feel like, and for good reason, uh, EBI rules obviously are Eddie Bravo Invitational, which he also started Tenth Planet. Alan Sanchez as a 10th planet guy looked like he had the overtime down to a science. He, he just looked phenomenal in the overtime. And I remember watching the first Emerald city and the same thing was, was the case. Um, if you remember back, he made it to the finals of the 170 Emerald city. There was a problem with the venue he won his semifinal match against someone, and the the event ran over the time that they had oh. the they had the the oh. location set for. Some I don't know if it was a, like a COVID curfew or what it was, but they were either needed to end the event after the semifinals, or he had to immediately fight. The moment he was done winning the semifinal match, he had to fight against PJ Barch. No break? Without a break in the finals. <laughs> Who also was his teammate at 10th Planet. So it was two 10th Planet guys in the final, and Sanchez with no rest. I believe it went to overtime as well. And uh, he ended. PJ ended up winning, but just a gutsy gutsy yeah. performance and to to play in this 185 bracket against some significantly bigger guys and do very very well says a lot about sanchez for sure yeah real quick question what did second place get <laughs> i was wondering that same thing i don't think they got anything i so, think it was so all or nothing they did they give bonuses i know at previous ebis they gave bonuses for finish i didn't mention it Okay. Um, but you're right. In uh, in the first one, it was a five thousand dollar tournament, mm-hmm. and then it was like thousand dollar bonuses for submissions or something. I think, like it, was, that. I think it was like five hundred, maybe. Maybe, yeah. Because yeah. I know uh, Barch won. I want to say six thousand dollars. So he got a couple of submissions along the way. But in this tournament, all or nothing. Thanks for coming. Fifteen other guys just said, "Hey." Yep. <laughs> wow. Yep. So second round, um, we skipped Rodriguez and Harris. Yes, we did. Jay Rodriguez, which we talked about him, but we we skipped ahead. So um, that's my fault. Jay Rodriguez, <laughs> winner via inside heel hook over Harris. That was that was a pretty quick match too. Was that the one where the guy basically just looked at him and was like, "You better tap." I Possibly. I, I was actually. I was actually in the hall talking to Sean Yachty Marco oh. during this match. <laughs> <laughs> so that's uh, probably why I missed it. Um, but yeah, Jay, winner over Her- uh, Aaron Harris, and then had the unfortunate draw in the next round to face Oliver Tassa. Yeah. So quarterfinal matchups, let me just read them off here, and then we'll talk about them. We have Giancarlo against Enrique Galarzara. Uh, Nick Ronan versus Josh Hayden, Oliver Taza versus Jay Rodriguez, mm. and Sean Yadi Marco versus Alan Sanchez. So, a lot starting in the quarterfinals, 
it got really, really interesting. Yeah, it did. Um, Giancarlo, winner over Enrique, submission, overtime, rear naked choke. Again, a brutal rear naked choke. I don't know what the breaking mechanics he's using, but those guys did not look comfortable. Yeah, and I, I was listening to Silver Fox right next to me, probably as far as where Brian is sitting, and how calm he was and how he was trying to work uh, Enrique into uh, different angles and different positions. And uh, he got out of a few, and especially during the real match. But, uh, yeah, by the time the overtime came, the positions were already set up for Giancarlo, and yep. he just ended it. Was this a, like a jaw crush type rear naked cho- choke, or was he it, like under the chin? I mean, it happened so quick, but he was using, uh, obviously he's under Dana Hair, and he was using that, the choke, but that also that rotational oh, yeah. finish that, that Dana Hair teaches, and it looked very uncomfortable. Well, they're, they're both really technically a, a Henzo approach with Silver Fox. Yep. Um, but, uh, and I watch, I've watched Enrique train you know, at, at my school a, a few times, and um, interesting thing about him is he's really super calm. He's a typical Hispanic guy, talks really slow, and then he almost sounds sexy when, when he's teaching you something, and then he's telling you <laughs> to make a move. So going back to coaching where people are coaching and they're, and, and they're being very detailed, I just remember him coaching Christine, and he's going, yeah, Christine. Yeah, <laughs> and, and I'm listening to this. I had to turn around. I'm going, really? <laughs> She's with me. <laughs> In fact, I think Christine's got a little crush on that. <laughs> hey, no sexy coaching. <laughs> it's all selective. <laughs> he didn't do that to me when he was coaching me. Trust me. We're not, we're not cute enough, Eric. <laughs> all right. So, uh, second quarter final matchup: Nick Ronan versus Josh Hayden. So first uh first matchup, Nick Ronan won his first one via ride time. And then Josh won via uh inside heel hook. Um or maybe outside heel hook, but it was very, very quick finish. So in regulation as I'm watching this, I thought Josh was gonna be able to get the finish. Uh he had multiple leg entanglements that looked good. And arm bars. Yeah. You know. Yep. I I just think that you know what, Ronan just has his ability to get out of really really bad positions. Yes, and so Josh, so it went to overtime. Josh had finishing opportunities in uh, regulation, and I felt like if that was a you know ADCC match or if that was a IBJJF match, Josh would have won because he was in dominant positions multiple times. He took Nick down a couple of times, but obviously EBI sub only rules is, is a different story. Um, and then when it went, when it came to overtime, Josh elected to play armbar all three overtimes, which when we get further on in the conversation here, I think plays a factor yeah. in future stuff. So Josh's armbar slash triangle, that high position, he, did really well with that and at one point had nick's arm if i remember correctly fully extended i thought he broke it i thought it was over <laughs> i thought he broke it <laughs> yeah. probably did 
<laughs> Some guys are so tough, they just don't let you know. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure he's going to be feeling it, uh, was feeling it the next day for sure. Um, but you're right. I thought Josh, I mean, he probably took some pops to, to get yeah. out of that Nick did. But Nick ended up victorious via escape or slash ride time yeah. uh, in overtime. Next match, another quick one for Taza. Taza versus Jay Rodriguez. Submission inside heel hook. Jay looked phenomenal in his first match winning via inside heel hook, but versus versus uh, the leg attacks of Taza, it didn't look yeah. close. At Oliver's, least not to me. Yeah, Oliver set that up again with with the same um, false reap approach that you know I've been playing with, and man, it's it's beautiful. Yep, yep, I agree. First two rounds. It didn't look like, and it didn't look, Taza looked un- untouchable yeah. after the first two rounds. And for that matter, so did Giancarlo in the first two rounds. Yeah. <laughs> Although I think Taza might have had all in maybe one minute. Okay. True, yeah. true. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're talking about Taza finishing in 20 to 40 seconds yeah. per match. It was really, uh, really impressive. Uh, fourth quarterfinal match was. Sean Yadimarco versus Alan Sanchez. With Sean training, s- spending significant significant time at Tom's, um, I was really pulling for him to win this one. But Sanchez is, f- again, phenomenal. Eddie Bravo. Yeah. 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 Eddie and, great. Uh, I feel like Sanchez, for this one, really just grounded out. Yeah, it was, I it would was agree. It was a rough match to watch. Yeah, I think Sean looked really good. Again, much like the Josh Hayden versus Nick Ronan fight, Sean looked in regulation under any other rule sets, would have won the match. Uh, he was in dominant positions, passed Sanchez's guard a couple times, had some good attacks. But again, we're talking sub only, EBI rules. You know, once the timer's up, we move on to overtime. And Sanchez ended up winning in overtime. He flew uh, all the way from California for this. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So that sets up the two semifinal matches. We have Nick Ronan from Sarah versus Giancarlo uh, from New Wave. And then we have Taza from New Wave versus Alan Sanchez from 10th Planet. I'll be honest, based on how the first two rounds had gone, I thought for sure we were going to see an all-New Wave Dana Hare final with Giancarlo versus Oliver, but it was not to be. Yeah. Uh, so first match, Nick Ronan versus Giancarlo. Again, Nick just grinds it out. Yeah, but I also I it was the only time I saw Giancarlo get in a position to where he was not in control, and all of a sudden, once Nick got into the legs, he did not let go. He just stayed in there. Yes. And Giancarlo had to play defense all of a sudden as opposed to where he was on all the other matches. Giancarlo looked super comfortable throughout all three rounds. And even early on in this one with Nick, he seemed to have Nick on the defense most of the time. And it looked like he was going to just walk through him, you know. And then something switched during one of the leg entanglements where Nick made a transition and then all of a sudden you saw Giancarlo switch to defense 
and it was sort of too late, you know. I don't want to say the stance had any or the the edge of the mat had anything to do with it, but either way, you can't separate those two people. Like when you're in that leg entanglement, you can't reset a leg yeah. entanglement like that. Mm -hmm. it's um, too tight. You have to you have to let them let it play let out. Let it play yeah. out. There's no way to recreate that exact position with that kind of momentum. You know, right. With that, that type of that yeah, type intensity. of tightness and control, you know, you reset that, and it's a guarantee that he gets out. It was nice. It was a nice win. Yes. It was a nice win. You didn't expect it, and you know what? He was the underdog in that particular instance, mm -hmm. and a big win it. for Nick too, because yeah. Giancarlo, like I said earlier, just won ADCC trials in a massive bracket, massive bracket. So Did Oliver also like uh, do ADCC trials in Europe. I thought he did that one. Uh, possibly. I know some of the trials still haven't happened yet. Right. The West Coast trials should be next, I believe. Mm. Let me just... Uh, Are people allowed to bounce around, too? Like, if you go to the East Coast trials and you don't make it, can you, like, oh, well, it's, it's all right. I'll go to the West Coast. Yes. Okay. Yep. So, 88-kilogram trials results. First place was Giancarlo. Second place, no slouch, Elder Cruz. Third place, Jacob Couch. Oof. So that's a solid. That's a who's who right there. <laughs> yep. A murderer's row. Exactly. And to think that in the same weight class, we always saw Jacob Couch as the number two from uh, Pedigo. You know, when Andrew's healthy, he's kind of their number one guy. Yep. And uh, Couch has been, you know, finishing people that are at the top of that weight class. Couch has been finishing, yeah. I mean, he, who was. Who's number one? Uh, he was in that one. Yeah. yeah. He was incredible in that one. And I'm trying to he, remember who he Dante beat. Dante Leon and John Blank. Actually, that might be why John Blank drew uh, pulled out because uh, he destroyed his knee yeah, against Couch. Yeah, I think Couch. you might be right. Yeah. Uh, he, also, uh, him, he also destroyed Jimenez's knee as well, Roberto Jimenez. Oh, yeah, I see. Yeah. yeah, that's uh, that's a tough lineup to, <laughs> to win. And, and not to mention... In the trials, depending on the division, there was over 800 competitors combined for four, for five divisions. So I believe like the 66 and 77 and 88 all had like 180 people in the division. So you had to win Jeez. like seven <laughs> or eight matches Crap. in a row. To win, so Giancarlo went on quite a run. Yeah, to uh, to win the trials. Uh, so yeah, big win for Nick Ronan defeating Giancarlo, and then on the other side of the bracket we have Oliver Taza versus Alan Sanchez. I don't remember that match, at least not a lot of it. Uh, Taza won uh, in regulation, inside heel hook, but he didn't look nearly as dominant as those first two rounds I, uh, that's right it's it's a, i think it's the flexibility the inversions yep. that uh that differed from his other matches yeah i mean uh and just alan sanchez's level is clearly very very high taza also didn't look huge like Giancarlo, nick roan and those guys cut clearly to get to 185 what do you think he's 170 Taza and Sanchez didn't look nearly as big. Yeah, um, they probably walk at 185. That could be, could possibly be, but that was a fun match to watch. Uh, Taza winning uh, in regulation would be interesting to see 
that match if it had gone to overtime uh, because Sanchez had the overtime figured out yeah. for sure. If you take the legs away from someone like Taza, you know, what do you end up with? Top. I f- <laughs> He's got to play top. <laughs> yeah. Well, I feel like that's an interesting thing, too, with Josh Hayden. I feel like you give Josh Hayden versus Nick Ronan, you either give that 15 or 20 minutes of regulation or you give that a different rule set, which does not include overtime. I think Hayden catches Nick Ronan at some point. His his leg entanglement in the first match looked so fast. And, and Nick had already had so many matches, long, tough, tough matches. You know? yep. So, so yeah, he was... Uh, he was ripe at that point. If you ever want to hear an extremely fun story, listen to Miguel Benitez's Tapping In podcast. He tells a story about Josh Hayden having Tom in an Achilles lock. And it's, I will not spoil it for you guys, but you need to find it and listen to it. It's one of the funniest things I've ever seen. Um, but uh, Josh used to train, or is still under Tom, but spent a lot of time you know, training with Tom in the meantime, and his leg locks are very dangerous. So um, this, based on what he told me, was just a tune-up type of thing to enter uh, to support Sam and, uh, you know, knock off some rest before ADCC. Um, so be interesting to see uh, see how he does there. So setting up the finals, Oliver Taza versus Nick Ronan. What are your thoughts? I felt like Nick looked tired. Honestly, I had that impression right from him even coming out onto the mat. I was just kind of looking at him. He he looked like he'd been through a lot of battles at this point. I would agree. Plus, they know each other. I mean, I'm sure they've they've trained together. They've competed with each other. You know, so the styles were not unfamiliar for them. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, I, I think the fact that Nick had already gone through so much that day, mm-hmm. he was already compromised. You know, I've. I feel like when you call somebody a scrapper, it like makes you feel like they're not technical. Nick is very technical, but his matches were all scrappy. Like there was something about them where he just was always coming at you, you know, and that had to be tiring by the time you get to the finals. Yeah. It's a lot of heart. For sure. A lot of heart. For sure. He also... I don't know which match it was, but he got either headbutted or kneed or elbowed in the tooth too. I think he lost part of his tooth in one of those matches. <laughs> they stopped that temporarily for him. So just to to finish off this last match, it got interesting at the end. So it went to overtime, mm-hmm. and Nick, uh, I believe Nick took the back control first. Taza eventually escaped. He had to work for that. He did. But then where it got interesting was when it was Taz's turn for ride time. He chose the armbar. And where a lot of people would expect the back control, he chose the armbar. And then to take it further, he made 100% sure that he got the arm that Josh Hayden just went after three times. He specifically said, I want the right arm. Yes, yes, he did. (laughs) Uh, Which... You know, you wouldn't notice that if you're watching it at home on float grappling, but we were, were sitting there, Matt's side. Yes, he specifically asked for the right arm 
because that's the one that Josh Hayden had just went after three times and at one point had it fully extended. Yeah. That's a smart strategy. That was beautiful. For sure. But he had to go to that overtime twice to finish mm-hmm. Nick. Yes. Yeah. And it, it lists the finish as an inverted triangle, but it was that that triangle armbar position. It looked like he was setting up for a Yoko Sankaku. In fact, I was sitting right there, and I'm, I'm talking to Aiden. I'm going, he's going for a Yoko, and yeah. I'm thinking, Oliver might, be, might get mad at me because I'm, <laughs> I'm telling Nick what he's going to do next, you know, but yeah. it was great. It was, it was great. Yeah. So, yep, Oliver, was it the second round, I yeah, believe? Yeah, it was the second. Yeah. But like you said, Brian, I think after that many overtimes for Nick, he had to be worn down. Regardless of your conditioning level, yeah. I mean, going through what he went through, uh, that's a lot of time. He had, just in the second round and third round combined, he had 44 minutes of jiu-jitsu. Right. Yeah, because he fought uh, Martinez first round. That went all the way through overtime, one via ride time. Quarterfinals, Josh Hayden, all the way through three rounds of overtime. And then... Giancarlo, who was, as we already talked about, looked huge and won. He got a heel hook, but it was late yeah. in the match. So you're talking probably close to an hour on the mats. That's a lot <laughs> at of At a competition That's level. A lot of That's a lot. Plus the, you know, 10 minutes with Taza to in going into the second overtime. So, yeah, you're talking an hour and 10, an hour and 15 minutes of of mat time <laughs> it's gonna wear anyone down at a competition level for sure i feel like there's not really i mean you can get your conditioning as you know peak condition there's not really a way to prepare for that though like really your body's just gonna break down anyway well unless yeah. the other guy sucks <laughs> <laughs> yeah if it were me it'd be like oh yeah an hour with brian that sounds like fun <laughs> <laughs> i don't i was like yeah i don't even want to eat for an hour uh, and i like eating <laughs> It would be interesting to know how these guys, not the preparation beforehand because we know how extreme that preparation is, but it would be interesting to know what sort of preparation someone like Taza goes through during the evening for for a match like this where you know, okay, I'm going to fight right now, probably going to fight again in an hour, going to fight again in... 35 minutes you know because each time those that gets closer and closer um in between i i guess you'd have to approach it from the standpoint of okay this is my one fight this is it you know not to get too far ahead and say okay i've got to get more than likely so-and-so is going to win and that's my second match and do you do you think he would do something such as like not warming up knowing knowing that he has a lot of mat time in front of him to conserve energy, maybe well, just some light stretching. That's where I'm, what I would be really curious to know is how, like how he's fueling himself, how he's, is he just stretching and staying loose or what is, you know, that's a, not an easy thing to prepare for. Yeah. And I'm sure it was the same exact situation with these guys having to, to fight through eight people to go, win the trials you know yeah where every single match is a lose and you go home yeah you know it's not round robin or something like that where you lose oh, i'll come back and home in the next one no you got to win this one or else you're done 
So it's uh, it's interesting. I know Dan Gable is famous for saying you shouldn't go out on the mat unless you spent an hour warming up. But I feel like when you have such long matches, it's going to be well. I mean, to do that. That being said, you have to be one hundred percent ready to go for the first match because if you don't win the first one, then you're you're not going to continue on. And if you step on the mats with a talented jujitsu guy, you better be ready because it could be over in 10 seconds yeah you know you're thinking about the the next next four matches in a row but it could be over in a hurry yeah yeah when uh when you guys were warming meg up you know who was warming her up because austin 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 uh haley was was warming her up for the most part what was the level of intensity i mean how are you approaching that um what i usually tell most of my competitors uh and i don't know that this is a perfect science but it's what i feel has been most effective over the years is and it because it's easy i can tell it to a 10 year old kid and Mm -hmm. i can tell it to you know a brown belt and that is i want you to warm up to the point where you feel like you're just starting to sweat you're not like in a full sweat yet but you feel like you're just starting to sweat Another way to put that is I want you to feel like you do when you're about to start your second role of the day in in training at the academy. So you So not like when I'm training with Gabe <laughs> on my first role, okay? Right. <laughs> and Gabe's all in and it's like you kicked his dog and he's trying to kill you. Yeah, Gabe's yes. trying to kill you from the moment he gets within five feet of you. I know. <laughs> But I I feel like you have to be, uh, you can't tire yourself out, obviously, but you also, you need to be sufficiently warm so that you're very sharp because you can't be surprised by anything. So for me, that feeling of, you know, I just did a a five or six minute round with, say, Kevin, Mm -hmm. and now I'm going to walk over and train with Brian. I'm sufficiently warmed up, sufficiently stretched out to where I can go from zero to a hundred percent and be okay, both physically and mentally. That's kind of the, the area that I want people to be in. Did you approach this differently relative to the other tournaments that you went to simply because of the, I guess the weight of the super fight as opposed to let's say tap cancer or some Uh, local tournament? Yeah, a little, Mm -hmm. uh, but mostly just, in the mindset, I want you to be maybe slightly warmer than normal because we're preparing for one fight, not six or seven. And I also, you know, that being that from a physical standpoint, I want you just slightly warmer than you normally would be so that you're ready. Um, and then from a mental standpoint, it's just prepping, prepping Meg to literally give it everything you have. You've got six minutes you know, maybe up to 10, but more than likely this is going to be over in three to six minutes. So I want you to leave it all out there. Whereas if you're competing in, you know, six or seven matches in a row, we need to make sure that we go hard, but there's that little bit more that you have to leave to conserve, you know, and there's, the last thing I would want is for her to conserve a little bit of energy and then 
think, oh, I could have won if I had gone just to 5% harder. You know, like literally go for it. Your conditioning, you you know, her conditioning is, is yeah. top notch. So she's not going to gas out in six minutes, regardless of what pace. She could go full out for six minutes and still be fine. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> We've all experienced this. For sure, for sure. Yeah, uh, but, but I would have thought that the gravity of the moment, the fact that this is a first um, super fight for someone here, you yes. know, I thought, you know, I would have thought that maybe you would have changed anything as far as how you would have done it. And, or was this exactly how, looking back on it, this is exactly how I would have done it again? I would do it again, exactly the same way, for sure. And yeah, it was, it was a big deal for me, for this school to have its first super fight. And it was obviously clearly a huge deal for Meg. How was her head? It was good. She... I think she yelled at Hay- Aiden because uh, we were late and we were stopped <laughs> by the cops. And I think I was more mad at Aiden than she was. <laughs> <laughs> Aiden's never had a ticket before. <laughs> so he, was, he, he had that deer in headlights look like, uh, 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 I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> she was visibly more nervous than normal, but that's to be expected. You know, it's the first time you do something that's there's going to be additional nerves it was similar to the first few times that i watched her compete Mm. under a local tournament you know so a good fight or grappling industries or something those first few the nerves are high but then when you do it you know five or ten or fifteen times that those butterflies don't happen anymore and it's she was far far more methodical this time leading up to it, you could tell there were additional new <laughs> new nerves. But the moment jujitsu started, it was that's she, usually she she told me that uh, I was like, were you nervous? And she was like, not really. I was just more happy to finally be doing jujitsu again because Hayden wouldn't let me roll. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That was part of the plan too. <laughs> yeah, it was like Thursday night, and you said uh, Meg's only doing four rolls. And they'll be selective, and they're all flowing. Yes. Right? <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, that's that's purely because for her, that wasn't so that she could rest. It was more to avoid just a freak Injured. accident. Yeah. You know, because that would be the worst thing in the world to to prepare for something for two or three months. The f- the biggest thing that you've ever done sports wise, prepare for it to be. 110 percent ready to do it and then have a freak accident happen yeah Um, i remember rolling with her that night i'm thinking don't break her don't break her (laughs) (laughs) there's a a lot to be said for that though too because um like the smallest things can get can, can upset your preparation like there was a guy back when i was wrestling in high school he was a three-time state champion this was a senior year and he didn't check how much his bagel weighed the night before the state tournament (laughs) and he got up the next morning he was three tenths of a pound over and while jogging to lose the three tenths of a pound before the state tournament he broke his ankle yeah it doesn't doesn't take much no it can just end everything so it's very smart i would say to kind of put the bubble wrap on 
for sure. Especially, I mean, you have to prepare and you have to prepare hard. But when there's a line where you cross over and preparation is done and now it's time to recover and mentally prepare for the tournament, you know, there was nothing, there was no benefit to 10 rounds on Thursday night at 100% effort. Not according to her. That would have been worth it. <laughs> she would have done 10. <laughs> Easy. I know. That's why I made sure she did. <laughs> All right. So that closes out the 16-man uh, tournament. Let's take a, a couple minutes here before we end the podcast and talk about the two super fights. Uh, there was a match between... Amanda Leve and Lauren Jones from Black Hole Jiu-Jitsu. That was a fun match to watch. It was. Um, I, I watched Amanda actually just do a phenomenal job physically. Um, and she's, I mean, she just recently beat Gabby Garcia. And Gabby, so, you know, like, there's, yes. there's, there's yeah. game there. You know? Absolutely. That was an impressive match, too. Um, I, had, I had the privilege of being there for that one against Gabby and it was the control she has with her jujitsu is I would say unrivaled in, in some of her positions that she gets into. And I think that was evident uh, both in the Gabby match, but also in, in this one, once she gets to your back, yeah. she's not coming off. She so. doesn't. I mean, she, I mean, she had the whole right time. I think, I think maybe one Lauren got out with like two seconds or something. Yep. Yeah. That takes a lot of discipline too on Amanda's part that the way that that match played out for me you know if you're just a casual jiu-jitsu fan that might be boring to see that position basically most of the regulation she was on her back and the entirety of the overtime or, or almost all of it so you're talking about 15 minutes 13 to 15 minutes of having her on the back. Maybe that's boring to some people. For me, that shows that she's very disciplined. That's exactly what I would want out of any of my competitors. To get to the most dominant position that there is and not relinquish it. To constantly attack the neck, not successfully. And manage risk. Yeah. I'm the other way. <laughs> I want to finish. Okay. <laughs> but to to physically dominate, you know, there's she dominated all aspects of the match. You know. She did. She did not get the finish. Clearly Lauren Jones is a tough girl. But Leve's uh ability to stack and patiently work out of the arm bar is also impressive too, because she was in an arm bar. I mean, I think Lauren chose armbar in the overtime mm-hmm. all three times, and it took a lot of time every time for Leve to work her way out. Yep. So that was also that was super patient, super patient on her part, exactly. Where you know what, any mistake she would have had, all the right time would have been for naught. Mm-hmm. It's um, it's an interesting strategy wise. I I was talking to someone about this last week, but the way that she went through that match is exactly the way that I see and try to have both Haley and Meg fight as female practitioners as well. And that's to 
where they both come from a completely different angle. You know, Meg likes to play guard, but ultimately Meg's strongest suit is that high back control where you're threatening the neck, you're threatening the side triangle, you're threatening the, the rear triangle and the arm lock. And the same for Haley, where you're looking to pass the guard, mount, get them to turn over, attack the back and the neck and the arm from a high mounted position. Yeah. That's exactly what Levy did the entire match. Um, I think that's a very safe path to victory if you can obviously implement it, which is not easy, but it was played perfectly on her part. All right, let's look at the last one of the night. That is... This is a fun one. Yeah, fan, <laughs> a f- definitely a fan favorite, the Giant Slayer, Esteban Martinez uh, versus Eric Naples from Hobson Moore. Uh, Naples, I believe, just won IBJJF uh, pans like a month or two before this. So I didn't know who he was at the time, yeah. but clearly he... Um, he gave a really strong account of himself. He made a very yeah. good showing. Yep. Honestly, he was kind of young too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And honestly, I feel like it's practically impossible to break down that match because it's there was, fast. It was it was fast. nonstop movement, uh, nonstop cartwheel passes. Right. right. <laughs> um, Estevan is one of the most exciting people to watch a jiu-jitsu match that I've ever seen. And he's my weight class. He's he smaller is. than you. I, think. I, I said weight class. <laughs> he's, he's an Adam weight. Um, I don't know that he is five feet tall. I, I, in fact, I would, don't think he is. Um, Gosh, I'm taller than someone. <laughs> awesome. The match supposedly was at 125 pounds. I don't know that either guy was 125 pounds. But possibly. I was 123 at the time. I could have done that. You could have done that. <laughs> The regulation, which was 10 minutes, saw cartwheel passes, backflips, leg entanglements, guard passes, guard recoveries. It literally did not stop. Um, And then in overtime, it was like a light switch and everything changed. I don't know if you guys recall. Esteban chose the back first, finished a rear naked choke in 22 seconds. So... When you turn things around, uh, now Naples has to finish in, 22, finish 21. in 21 seconds. Um, so there's a little bit of a, you know, having that in the back of your mind makes it even more difficult because you have to kind of go for broke. Yep. So Esteban was able to get out in about 20 seconds and then uh, got the win via, well, it would be considered via submission since he submitted in his he top He did half. push him, though. He pushed him. I mean, he went through the whole regulation. I mean, I've seen that. I've seen Esteban just demolish way, way bigger guys. Yes. You know? yeah. And yeah. here, he got pushed to the end. Yep. He had, in the last ECI, he had the match at the tournament against uh, Cameron. Yes, he did. Oh, Cam uh, Cam from Ocean Ocean County. They uh, And yeah. Cam's a purple belt under Tom. That is a phenomenal match. In fact, that reminds me, I need to go rewatch that again because it was so good. <laughs> um, yeah. Another really good match uh, 
from about a month ago, Estevan fought against Sam McHale. And oh, really? That was very, very good as well. Definitely, if you have not seen that, it's definitely worth. Is it watching. on uh, Flow Grappling? It should be. Yeah, okay. we watched it. Uh, I forget the promotion, who was putting it on. I'll have to. Uh, I'll post it in the in the comments of the show. But very fun, fun match to watch. He plays that small game so well. He, he does. Really does. He's slippery. He gets out of. You, you see people put him in submissions that you think are like it's over, and then he just slips out. Because like, he's also physically strong. Yeah. I, I agree. I think that he, you know, you think of most 125 people, he's slightly shorter than the average 125-er. So instead he has, you know, five or ten pounds extra of muscle. He's stocky even for a 125 And fast. <laughs> yes, and extremely fast. Yeah. All right, guys, any other, uh, any other matches you wanted to to speak of or otherwise we'll wrap it up i guess i would just say that you know i've been to a couple ecis it's a phenomenal phenomenal show it's well worth the the trip and the money um sam always because he's been to our school he's the one that organizes eci um he always comes up and gives you a big hug awesome thanks for coming like it's a it's a really good environment yeah is he coming up Sam is a great guy. Yes, he's. Uh, we got to work it out. Mm-hmm. Um, we were going to shoot for December, uh, this past December, this month here, but things just got a little bit tight. too tight with time and stuff like that. So I think uh, we'll probably shoot for January, and uh, hopefully we'll we'll get together again. He's a phenomenal teacher, phenomenal guy in general. He's a he's a strong leg locker too. Absolutely, so I'm like holy cow. <laughs> Absolutely, and a solid competitor too. Another phenomenal match to watch is uh, there's a fight to win match between Cameron and Sam. Yeah, and that is absolute fireworks for sure. It, it's interesting, you know. I've I've rolled with, you know, some of the some of the guys out there that he's rolled with, and being being on a roll with someone at that level is just so incredibly demoralizing (laughs) (laughs) where where you just feel like this puppet and there's nothing you can do. Absolutely nothing you can do. Even when you think you've got a position and you have it, he just picked me up and stood up. (laughs) I remember thinking uh, or, or coaching Haley and Meg when he was here, not the day of the seminar, but the following day, we did like mm-hmm. a noontime. Uh, I remember I was there. Class. Yeah. And uh, so they each got a chance to roll with Sam so he could kind of see where they're at and stuff like that. And I, I said to each of them separately before their roll with Sam, I'm like, listen, do not let him invert underneath you because it's going to go south immediately from there. Less than five seconds to both of them. He was already <laughs> inverted and in on a leg in under five seconds. <laughs> uh, it, it's incredible. Yeah. I mean, um, I rolled with uh, Frankie Rosenthal and a few a few years ago, and it just felt exactly like that. I was just floating around in in this floating pass that I thought I had, and yeah, I I was just getting insights in Kakud while I'm getting thrown up in the air. Yeah, there's yeah. there's another level that you know. Most yeah. people can't comprehend until they feel it. And it kind of sucks. <laughs> I mean, I've been doing this for like 
nine some odd years and I'm kind I need my money back. <laughs> it feels it feels like you're not even playing the same game. You're not. Yeah. Well, that's because you're not. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. remember rolling with uh, jujitsu when I went out out there in the spring, and it was. I mean, like I was doing everything I could, and he was like having a conversation with somebody about class scheduling the entire time, and just like beating the crap out of me. <laughs> I was like this not even it's it's, it's so high but, it's but you're same. not very good i'm not <laughs> especially back then <laughs> it's honestly no different rolling with tom i mean i've rolled with tom a bunch of times and he literally uh brian jujitsu cop said it right. best to me he's rolled with tom multiple times as well he makes you feel like a child it's just yeah you can't do anything he's stronger than you are he's faster than you are he has more knowledge than you do there's nothing that you can do you're helpless and the gap in skill level between an average black belt and someone like tom is greater than a black an average black belt and like a kid orange belt like it's just yeah the highest level is Closer than you think, but way further away than you think. You so, might need a gun. <laughs> and even then, and then you better yeah. be more and than 20 he, feet away. He's going to say he's going to take your gun and then you're screwed twice. Uh, what's eight? the difference between what, what makes somebody like Tom happen where he is just so, far, so much far and away better than everyone else? Obsession from yeah. physical well, ability early on you know he was a a uh, track and field star in his uh high school but then after that it was just pure drive he discipline and stuff. i don't believe so he looks like a wrestler you know, he's from jersey <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean you you have to be obsessed to yeah. get to that level and that's i think a pretty common theme among everyone at the highest level some people call it discipline but you can't it's not even just discipline it's you have to be obsessed with the what you're doing otherwise you're gonna quit you yeah. know it's, it's way too easy to quit but that said you know when when you look at old school jits and you look at i guess you want to call it new school jits you know the the old school still works but that said, the game just continues on moving forward you know, and improving. And I, I see it and I watch them going, oh, my God, all these kids are just going to beat me up soon. Okay. <laughs> but yeah. jiu is a, in the grand scheme of martial arts, is a very young martial art in comparison with something like Taekwondo or Judo or something like that. Jiu-Jitsu is still evolving yeah. for sure. If you look at, if you step back and look at it. Oh no, definitely, I agree. But also, there's a an element of the fact that it's sort of on a smaller scale. It's it's a little bit cyclical, where something new comes out, that's the meta currently. Then everybody figures out how to defend that, and then there's something different comes out, and that sort of falls by the wayside. And I've seen it over the past. 10 or 12 years and I feel like that's another transition 
that will happen. Like I've seen leg attacks weren't really a thing when I started jujitsu. It was frowned upon. 12 years ago. It was only a thing in a very sm- segmented areas. You know, it was a Dean Lister thing. It yeah. was a John Danaher thing. It was certain people, but it was it was frowned upon for the most part. But then they win at the highest level with leg locks. So now what do you have? You have everybody else learning leg locks. Everybody's learning the leg lock defense. Now the number of leg locks goes down and people start looking for the next thing. You know, when people, it'll ju- it just comes back around. I'm waiting for wrist locks. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think is going to be the next thing? I Wrist locks. I, <laughs> <laughs> I talked to... Uh, I can't remember who I was talking to about this. Maybe it was Aiden, but I feel like I feel like control positions and finishing from certain control positions is going to be. It's already becoming a thing. So if you look at someone like Gordon, attack his you know his instructional attacking from top pins, he basically went through that whole thing. He fought against Mateus Denise and was like. High, high mounted, both arms pinned straight above his head, like, and then sits to S mount and arm locks him with, you know, it's not easy to control an ADCC winner yeah, like that. Anytime he's got a book or a DVD to sell, okay, that's that's what his next tournament is going to be like. Right. right? He's just going to go after <laughs> yeah. arm locks because he's doing a DVD or an arm lock. Yep. Yeah. I feel like that's a direction that, and I, you know, this is just my thought. I don't, there's no science behind it, but I feel like that's an area that I will see more of from him. Cause you also see a lot of the, uh, well, it used to be DDS guys, but there was a string of who's number ones where all of a sudden you see Nikki Ryan hitting people with double leg takedowns. Yeah. Like, okay, well, why would you, why would you go after double leg takedowns if normally you play guard and enter the legs. And you're a jiu-jitsu player. Right. So now you're hitting double leg takedowns, going to mount and attacking from top. Is that the next thing? Maybe. <laughs> I don't. I can't think he, of anything he else. He looked like a wrestler in that one. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Was like, and that was against cow. Dante Leon, who was a Who's very a, good wrestler. Exactly. Um, and he got hurt. Yes, he did. Most, you know, two-thirds of the way through, he messed up his knee. That was a very good match to watch. Yeah. So I just feel like, again, it also depends on the rule set because, you know, ADCC rules are different. No points for the first half, points for the second half, yeah. you know, negative points for sitting to guard. Uh, so you have to wrestle from the feet. So the rules make the game just like everything else. You know, it's we've had wrestlers come in here and try jujitsu and it does not go well for them. They suck like me. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, if but a jujitsu, g- but the reverse is true too. If a jujitsu guy goes into a wrestling practice, guess what? He's going to get pinned a bunch of times. What's is jujitsu better than wrestling? No, it's a different sport, and there's different rules. So, ideally, you should have both. <laughs> As a casual grappler, yeah. you know, most people don't have time for both. But as a competitor, you should be working both for sure. Definitely. I mean, including Sambo and all the other stand-ups that come with it, if you're really looking to to improve yourself and get better and play at another level. 
So let me ask from a personal perspective, um, Brian, what are you looking for in this game? In jujitsu? Yeah. Um, as wow, that's artist, a long as pause. A <laughs> He's looking for his guard. <laughs> uh, I don't have one. Um, <laughs> no, I. As an art, I really enjoy doing it. So no matter what, I think I'm I'm kind of in it as a, just a long term practitioner. Um, but I initially got into jujitsu to compete. Um, I had the idea of, um, you know, I, I kind of got into jujitsu from, you know, watching Ronda Rousey and Conor McGregor in the UFC. And I always, even back when I was wrestling, I wanted to do that. So I got into jujitsu with the idea of doing that. So that's kind of what I want to do. And but how's it changed? Is it the same thing for you? Sorry, I am I taking over? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, I think it's this. I think it's it's the same. I think I have a different um, vision of what that means and how to do it and what's going to be required. Um, Is it's, it easier than you thought it would be? Uh, no, <laughs> I know you've. I think you've quoted me on this podcast before, but when I, I think it was. Um, when I, I think maybe one or two stripes on my white belt, I went up to you. I was like, man, the amount of work I had to put in to get one of these stripes, I thought I'd be a purple belt by now. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's way harder than I thought it was. But it's also, it's also way more worth it than I thought it would be. Yeah. Um, and I feel like that's, in general, just, just also true of most things that you do. Anything worth anything or worth doing is that's difficult. Mm -hmm. right? It's going to be so much more rewarding. I yep. mean, I recall when I was younger, all I wanted was a blue belt. That's all I wanted. You know, and me too, and to then, be honest with you. Yeah, and then after that, uh, purple. And then when I got to a certain point at blue, I think about four years in as blue, um, I was like, I don't want any more colors. I just want to keep doing this. <laughs> I want to be the most dangerous blue belt you never want to roll with on that mat. Yep. Yep. Tyler Fish. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, like I looked at my, I looked at the little tracker that we have here at Flow that just kind of logs all your sessions uh -huh. that you do. And I've put the same number of hours or close to the same number of hours into my blue belt as I have into all of my white belt. And I still don't have a stripe on my blue belt, which is, which is fine. I don't need one, but it's every level up, it gets harder. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It's uh it's interesting too because like Eric said, eventually it there should become a point where the belt doesn't even matter at all. And and, and, and don't even want it. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> exactly. And honestly that once you reach that point, that's the time when you finally are ready for the next one. Which is terrible. <laughs> You're ready for the next one when you don't want it anymore. But I was the same way as you when I started. I obviously we, we weren't nearly as connected to to the game, the game, the bigger yeah. scene of jujitsu being under Tom and things like that. It was much more of a small scale. I couldn't imagine myself beyond blue belt. Like that was, and and I feel like that's probably the way that anyone first starts jujitsu. They look at those blue belts and like. I want that sometime, you know, I want that someday, and, but they don't see beyond that. And I feel like 
that might be a reason why people quit at blue belt because they look at the blue belt as their goal. And then once they get to it, they feel like they've reached their goal. But blue belts like blue belt isn't the goal. It's like the first checkpoint, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. How is, so both of you are significantly more advanced in the game than me. How is your impression of what jujitsu is changed from when you were like a white belt to blue belt. Now you're hating a black belt and Eric, you're a brown belt. How is the, what you envision a brown belt to be or a black belt to be changed as you've gone along? Oof. You could do that one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for me, I feel, and I've, I've always said that I feel like there's giant, giant gulfs in skill between white and blue and between blue and mid-level purple. I feel like those are two huge jumps. And then I feel like from purple to black is a very small amount of skill difference. But what you're, but the difference is the fine tuning of the game and the details and the ability to explain it to other people successfully. If you take a two-stripe purple belt competitor, he's going to hang in there with a black belt competitor. It's not going to be a landslide. Will he win? Maybe not. But it's not going to be nearly as drastic a difference as if you took that same two-stripe purple belt and put him with a blue belt or a white belt. Those are big jumps because there's so much to learn right. between white and blue, and there's so much to learn between blue and purple. But after that, it's just getting better at what you already know for the most part. No, granted, there's new things you're going to learn, but I think it's mostly fine-tuning, figuring out what your game is, what works for your body type, and just settling in and enjoying the ride. Know. Yeah, I, I I'd have to uh, I'd have to agree, especially on the white to blue. That's where you start finding the fundamentals and you start getting that big jump in your game. Um, example of that is uh, Gabe. Okay, uh, that guy's got is so rough around the edges. However, yeah, the amount of time he's spending right now, both here as well as off mat, you can see how he's growing. But that said, getting to purple. I think for me personally was where I started figuring out what my game is, what worked for me uh, as a smaller practitioner. And then right now, I don't know. I'm, I'm an overrated purple in my opinion at this point <laughs> being brown belt. <laughs> but then again, I'm the, uh, the reticent brown. <laughs> right after you get uh, promoted, I've heard, I read an article, it's called imposter syndrome, where... <laughs> You don't feel like you're the belt level that you're wearing. You still feel like the previous level, yeah. even though you are, and everybody else knows it, and your instructor knows it. You don't feel like you're a brown belt or, or whatever you're promoted to. Yeah, I, I I think I shared with you. It took me a long time to find a, a cake that was purple to celebrate <laughs> my purple belt. Okay, so now I finally find it, and I sent you a picture of it. Now I have to find a a. Uh, a brown cake, okay, but inside yeah, it would have the same purple. The chocolate cake is easy to find. Well, the chocolate <laughs> cake is, but then in the middle will be purple. So I'm going to have the same purple cake and just color it 
okay. chocolate outside. <laughs> I, can, I, can <laughs> <with that. laughs> I think the other thing with with the the belt rankings, they're and they're loose, right? They're because they're a, they vary from school to school, but I don't think a lot of people realize when they start that the length of time between white and blue is far less than the length of time between blue and purple. And I think that's a reason why a lot of blues end up quitting because one, they feel like they've reached their goal and it's all set now. And now it's like, okay, well I know enough. I'm all set. And then two, it's a long road to purple belt because purple is a, I would consider a senior belt. Like if you get strapped with a purple belt, I would expect you to get a, a phone call mid afternoon from me. And I have an emergency I need you to teach tonight. And at a purple belt, you should be able to conduct a well thought out class on short notice and be able to, explain that to people or be able to you know have far greater you have a wide amount of knowledge but you still need to fine-tune your details you know that's the difference between you and a higher belt yeah i i find that teaching for me is uh it's it's a lot harder than i would have thought okay i mean in my mind i think i i have it however being able to change things and being able to more importantly, articulated in a manner that that resonates to the room itself. Yep. That's hard as hell. Because you you aren't you can't like have your specific teaching style and just be like, okay, well, this is how I teach. Here you go. People learn different ways, and you need to be able to teach all the different ways that people learn. You know, that's why you'll hear me explain the same thing three or four different ways because. Some people learn by watching. Some people learn by, see, you know, hearing it or physically being moved in the right position. There's a couple of people that I'll walk around, you know, I'll have explained it thoroughly, you know, <laughs> one, two, three, clap, let's go do it. And then I will, f there's a few people that I have to physically move their body the direction that it needs to go that would be me <laughs> not <Yeah>. you <laughs> not you definitely me. Um, no. you've done you've done that to me a lot <laughs> <laughs> but then it's like oh i get it now you know because they see it but that's not the way they learn they learn by by physically moving a certain way and if you don't know that somebody that may have all the talent in the world to become great at jujitsu may never become great because the instructor didn't know how to help them learn yeah. you know it's uh that's and that's why not everyone is cut out to teach either you know there's there's black belt competitors who are phenomenal competitors but not good instructors and they'll even tell you that you know it, it comes down to it's very difficult to be both a high level competitor and a high level instructor slash coach there's some people that are like gordon phenomenal instructor and competitor i don't know I th that's probably more a product of the fact that john is his coach and john is uh, ocd enough to yeah. where it, it rubs off on him yep no yeah. i would agree i, I mean if 
I've listened to a few of his students, and they've done seminars, and they all sound the same, the yep. same tone, mm -hmm. the same speed with which they, they articulate a move. Yep. I attribute my teaching to Aaron Blake. We're under Tom now, but we were under Aaron for up until I was two years into my brown belt. We were under Aaron. His t he teaches exactly how I teach. Mm -hmm. um, that's where I learned it from. And I feel like he is a phenomenal instructor. So I tried to learn to teach just like he did. And I feel like it works, you know. Um, but everyone teaches different. And you don't necessarily have to have competition success at the highest level to be really good at teaching someone how to have success. It's, you know, it's you need to, like Tom says, instructors need to suffer along with their students, but they need to make sure that they know what they need to know. You know, guys like Dana Hare. Dana Hare has one shit from, he had surgeries that ruined his chance to be successful himself. But his mind allowed him to make champions because of the effort he puts in. He's obsessed with jujitsu and making champions. Yeah. You know, it also helps to have the athletes that he had. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But I feel like some of the lesser names that he had now are becoming amazing as well. You know, if we look at the tournament, we just had Giancarlo and Oliver Taza. Oliver's not particularly strong or particularly anything, but he's sure as talented now. Yeah. You know, and that's been a grind up through the process because that wasn't always that way. Yeah, I remember when he was in Canada and he was still with TriStar and him and Krenlinson were making their trip all the way down here. Yep. You know, and, and the work it took to be at this level right now where we just watched him at a tournament where he just finished two matches in a row in under a minute. You know, there's, there's a lot of work in there, a lot of sacrifice. Yep. That's another thing that I remember Tom was talking about with, uh, with Gordon. He needed somebody to... I forget why, but he like needed somebody to train with him that night. And Gordon was like, sure, I'll be there. And came down, trained. And later on, Tom figured out that Gordon was in Canada and drove 20 hours overnight yep. to be there. And 100%. it's like, that's how it is at the high level. Like, you have to be willing to sacrifice that much. Yep. And so. not everyone is willing to make that sacrifice. And that's totally fine. I didn't even want to make it up to 8 o'clock this morning. <laughs> <laughs> like, what the hell? And, and a 15-minute drive <laughs> with no traffic. <laughs> no, I completely agree. If you, that's why if you look at you know, people with, that have success, look at, look at Jaden, right? Mm -hmm. She moved from Colorado to train with Tom. Right after that, she was, she was already a purple belt. She lost the first round... I forget whether it was Worlds or Pants, one of the two. She lost in the first round. And Tom told her, like, this is part of the story. It's not the story. And then guess what? A few months back, she comes back a year later and wins it all. You know, and that's, you're talking about a, I don't know how old she is, 19 probably. Yeah. Moved halfway across the country to train with someone because she wants to be the best. You know, you look at Sam McHale, 
he drives down from New York to Tom's, you know, every other week to train with Tom, you know, guys yeah. like, or Sean or whoever, you know, if you want to be at the top, you have to, it's that kind you of gotta stuff. You got to be willing to go. Yep. Four hour, six hour drive, whatever it is. You know, look at Gordon. He drove to the city all the time. There's stories about that. Driving to New York City to train. Sleeping on the mats. Yep. <laughs> yeah. There's curse word filled stories with that because he hated it. <laughs> yeah. Yep. That's t- all right, guys, we are almost at the two-hour mark, so I think we really? probably should call it. <laughs> well, that's such a good time. I appreciate you guys yeah. coming in. We'll definitely, uh, after one of these next events, we'll, uh, we'll do this again soon. All right, thanks awesome. a lot, guys. Thank you. I have to pee now. <laughs> Remember, you don't need to move fast. You simply need to move forward. Life presents all of us different obstacles. It's easy to give up. However, get up, smile, and put one foot in front of the other. Everything works out. I promise you. Tom DeBlast.